This is Truth Matters Church. In today's study, we are in part two of the message, The Days Will Come, where we continue to look at the Olivet Discourse to help us properly interpret the opening of the seals as described in Revelation chapter 6. As good pupils of God's Word, we continue to be refined, challenged, and corrected as we allow the Holy Spirit to speak through Scripture. To get the most from this message, download the PDF slides or watch the video at truthmatterschurch.org. So if you haven't already, please get your material ready, and we will continue on with our journey. I'd like to call this the Great Olivet Discourse Series. Uh, We kicked this off a few weeks ago, but we're going to keep this going because this is going to be very important for us in our study of the book of Revelation. And it's important because we want to see and harmonize what our Lord explained to his disciples during the Olivet Discourse concerning the destruction of the temple, his return, and the end of the age. Revelation is all that. So it would be in our best interest that we also have some level of understanding in our Lord's teaching and His explanation that He gave to His disciples. And the title of our study today is part two of The Days Will Come. And in our last study, we did begin to touch upon this great Olivet Discourse taught by our Lord. And I made this argument that out of all of Scripture, if you were to look at all 66 books, which Old Testament book and which New Testament book gives us the most information and detail concerning the end times. And I argued that in the Old Testament, that would be Daniel and the visions that was given to Daniel. And that's why we spent quite a bit of time in Daniel and looking at his visions. If you were to look at the New Testament, apart from Revelation itself, you would go to the Gospels. But in particular, you would go to the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse is the most comprehensive apart from Revelation that gives us details and descriptions concerning the end times. I do want to say, if you were to look at the Gospels and you were to read the parables of our Lord, yes, the parables will give us clues and insights into His return, the end times, and the kingdom of God. But the one thing that's different between the parables and the Great Olivet Discourse is a parable is a parable. It's something that needs to be reflected upon. Whereas in the Olivet Discourse, he gave it in plain language. So there, it's not a parable. He gave it to him straight. And when we kicked off this series, what I did was I went to Luke's account because the Olivet Discourse is in Luke 21 and Matthew 24. And I went to Luke because Luke is a historian. And just like in Revelation, we are taking things in the order that it's given unless the Scripture tells us that it's not in order or he gives us some time markers, we'll consider that. But generally speaking, we're taking Revelation in sequence. So if I want to understand the Great Olivet Discourse, I want to understand it in its sequence. And Luke, being a historian, he writes things in sequence. And that's how he even opened up the book of Acts. He, he did his investigation to Theopolis, wherever that was, and he gave an account in the order that he gave. He gave it. So I went to Luke. I said, okay, Luke, however you described the events that our Lord told his disciples, in that order, I'm going to take it in that order. 
But what I did was, I'm also going to consider Matthew so that we have the full picture. But if there's a, a difference in possibly the timing or in the order, I'm going to go to Luke. I'm going to allow that to dictate the order. And the goal for our first study was to ascertain what our Lord meant when he said, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be thrown down, torn down during this discourse. And that's how we came up with the title of this now two-part study, The Days Will Come. But I wanted us to answer two questions. More specifically, I wanted to know what temple was our Lord referring to? And secondly, what sign was our Lord referring to in his explanation to his disciples? And the reason why we wanted to know the answer to these two questions was to see where does the Olivet Discourse fall with respect to Daniel's visions and John's visions in the book of Revelation? Because we last left off, believe it or not, in the first seal, and we haven't really gone much further. But I'm trying to see, okay, I've layered in Daniel to help frame the end, but now where does the Olivet Discourse fall in this whole thing? So I want to know the answers to these two questions so we can see where does the Olivet Discourse fall? as we layer in this into our study. So here's a re, here was a recap of that first question. What temple was our Lord referring to? This is what I observed. If you were to go out there and read commentaries on this particular statement made by our Lord, this is what's the most popular school of thought. That when our Lord was talking about the destruction of the temple, he was prophesying about the destruction of the second temple in 70 AD by the Romans. And I admit, I was there. That was the teaching that I was exposed to. So if you were to listen to some of our past studies, when I was introducing Revelation, I even made the comment that our Lord prophesied of the destruction. And I want to, and I want to say that this is a true and historical fact that the second temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. But that event, it doesn't fully meet what our Lord said. Let me show it to you again. Luke 21.6 As for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. I thought it would be good to have a little visual here. This image is likely what that second temple looked like. So if you wanted to know... Okay, get a visual here. What did that second temple look like? Here it is, in a nutshell. And our Lord said, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. It was a magnificent sight. These things we learn in context are the temple buildings. So Luke 21.6 can be reread this way. As for the temple buildings which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. And when we employ our disciplines, let's not add or take away, there's a literal fulfillment, which means, let me ask you a question. When Jesus says, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. What does that mean? <laughs> there will not be a single stone. You see this picture? There won't be a single stone 
left upon another stone, which will not be torn down. Look, I didn't add or t- I'm not adding or take it away. That's what our Lord said. That brings the question then, okay, when this temple was destroyed in 70 AD, to what extent was it destroyed? So for here, I'd like for us to look at what the Jewish historian Josephus told us. In his work, The Wars of the Jews, book 6, Josephus gives us a lot of insight. In chapter 8 of this book, he does speak about the aftermath of their destruction. And I think it would be good for us to look at the works of Josephus so that we can really have an understanding of the devastation that the Jewish people went through when they were destroyed by the Romans. In his book, in chapter 8, he wrote, So the Romans, being now become masters of the wars, they both placed their ensigns upon the towers and made joyful acclamations for the victory they had gained, as having found the end of this war much lighter than its beginning. I'm going to explain this as we go through. He's talking about they defeated the Jews. The Jews have been defeated. And now they're celebrating. There's this joy within Rome. And ensigns is their, sign, their flag. And they put it now on the towers. Let's continue on. For when they had gotten upon, the last was without any bloodshed. They could hardly believe what they found to be true. But seeing nobody to oppose them, they stood in doubt what such an unusual solitude could mean. The Romans were surprised that they weren't killed and that there was this solitude that they survived this war and there's this joy within them that they're finding out, wow, we didn't lose anybody. That's how I'm reading this. Let's continue on. But when they went in numbers into the lanes of the city, with their swords drawn, they slew those they overtook without mercy and set fire to the houses whither the Jews were fled and burnt every soul in them and laid waste a great many to the rest. Here he's describing, you can see the Roman army going through Jerusalem with swords drawn. Jews, kill them. Just kill them. Wipe them out. Slaughter them and annihilate them. But when they went in numbers into the lanes of the cities with their sword drawn, they slew those whom they overtook without mercy. And this is what they did. They set fire to the houses whither the Jews were fled and burnt every soul in them and laid a great, weight, uh, a great waste, a great many of the rest. So those that didn't slay, and let's say they went into the, house, the houses, he burned, they burned them down. And there's Jews in there burning to death. And when they were come to the houses to plunder them, they found in them entire families of dead men and the upper rooms full of dead corpses. This is of such as died by the famine Then they stood in horror at this sight and went out without touching anything. So as they're making through, as the Romans are going through the town and going through the houses, when they would walk into the houses, they would find entire families dead by the famine. And they were struck by it. So imagine the Roman soldiers and their cohort are going into these homes and seeing families dead together. And they stood at horror and they didn't touch anything. And just would leave the house. But although they had this 
commiseration for such as destroyed as were destroyed in that manner yet they had not the same for those who were still alive so even though they would find families dead because of the famine and taken by it they still didn't show mercy to those who survived and made sure that they finished the slaughter they ran through whom they met with and obstructed the very lanes with their dead bodies and made the whole city run down with blood to such a degree indeed that the fire of the many home, of the houses was quenched with the men's blood. There was such a great slaughter on that day or days that the blood was on the floor and the fires that they set on fire was quenched by the blood. Fire wouldn't go no more because of the blood. And truly so it happened, that though the slayers left off at the evening, yet did the fire greatly prevail in the night. And as all was burning, came the eighth day of the month of Gorpius or Elul upon Jerusalem, a city that had been liable to so many miseries during the siege that it had always enjoyed as much happiness from its first foundation. It would have certainly been the envy of the world nor did it on any other account so much deserve these sour misfortunes as by producing such a generation of men as were the occasions of its overthrow. Even Josephus is like, what a shame. You could have been the envy of the world, and they even saw that. But because they were producing a generation of men, in this case, rebelling against the Romans' authority, that led to their overthrow. Pretty graphic, isn't it? But here's where I want to get to in chapter 9. Now, when Titus was come into the, this upper city, he admired not only some of other places of strength in it, but particularly those strong towers which the tyrants in their mad conduct had relinquished. So now Titus is here. And now he's also here at the temple. And he's just marveling. What a fortress. Wow. For when he saw their solid altitude and the largeness of their several stones and the exactness of their joints and how great was their breadth and how extensive their length, he expressed himself after the manner following. So here's Titus. They won the war. And he was seeing this temple and the fortress that they made for themselves. And he was taken aback by how magnificent this fortress was. Look what Titus had to say. We have certainly had God for our assistant in this war. We, we have a pagan acknowledging that God was assisting them. He, go, he says, we have certainly had God for our assistant in this war, and it was no other than God who ejected the Jews out of these fortifications. For what could the hands of men or any machines do towards overthrowing these towers? He knew this took a supernatural act to overthrow the Jews in this fortress. And he's saying, this couldn't have been done if God didn't assist us. And what are we learning through our Daniel series? You know, the lion, the bear, the leopard, that God uses these nations as punishment for His people. That's no different with the Romans. Titus acknowledged that. He's saying, there's no machine at that time nor man that could have overtaken this fortress. Because he says, for what could the hands of men or any machines do towards overthrowing these towers 
at which time he had many discourses to his friends. He also let go free as had been bound by the tyrants and were left in the prisons. So as Titus is making their way, he's having these conversations. But if there's any prisoners of war of their own people that were held by the Jews, he would free them. Here's where I want to get at. Because of what I want us to get from history is to what extent was the second temple destroyed and Josephus records it. To conclude when he entirely demolished the rest of the city and overthrew its wars, he left these towers as a monument of his good fortune which had proved his auxiliaries and enabled him to take out what could not have otherwise been taken by him. I'm going to highlight this. Titus left towers. They were pretty destroyed, but Titus, wanting to commemorate his victory, he's saying, you know what, we're going to leave some towers. So Josephus tells us that while the Romans demolished the city, Titus didn't overthrow every tower. In other words, there still remains a stone left upon another that was not torn down. It's there in history. I want to ask us a question. Okay, can we trust Josephus? How about, is this corroborated in the present time? Is that the case now? Look familiar? The Wailing Wall. I think this picture speaks a thousand words. You see stones? I see stones. According to World Atlas, I thought this gave a good summary of what the Wailing Wall is in case you're not too familiar with it. The Wailing Wall is also popularly referred to as the Western Wall. It is the only remaining part of the second temple in Jerusalem's old city. Jerusalem is claimed as the capital city by both Israel and Palestine. And presently, the wall has become a place of pilgrimage and prayer what that is sacred to the followers of Judaism. According to the ancient Jews, the wall was held as one of the holiest places before the Romans destroyed the city in 78 CE or AD. The Wailing Wall has its history that can be traced back to the 2nd century BC, although the upper part of the wall was added much later. So what you're seeing here, there was some refurbishment, you can say, of the wall, and that was done around 2nd century B.C. At present time, the wall outlines part of the larger wall that surrounds the mosque and the Dome of the Rock, and therefore there is dispute over the control or access to the wall. Here's my case in point. Luke 21.6 that prophecy has not been fulfilled yet. Meaning, if there's any teachings that hold the view that when our Lord said, as for these things, the temple buildings which you're looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another, another which will not be torn down. If there's any teaching that says, well, he was prophesying of the destruction of the second temple in 70 AD, you must reconsider your position. For we just proved through Scripture and history that this is unfulfilled even to this very day. Let that go. Our Lord wasn't talking about the destruction of the second temple. We learned this truth. Okay, if it's not the second temple, it's a temple after that. Whatever temple is after that, that's going to be fully destroyed. It's, let's call that the third temple that our Lord, Daniel, and Paul spoke about during 
the end times. Because in that third temple is where the abomination of desolation will be erected, that will occur, and where Paul says the man of lawlessness will be revealed and display himself in that temple proclaiming to be God. It's coming, folks. Our Lord told us in advance. So that was a recap of our first question. Now let's recap our second question. For our second question, we look to find out what sign our Lord was referring to in his explanation to his disciples concerning when the temple buildings will be destroyed and what will be the sign of his coming and the end of the age are about to take place. So what I did was I tried my best to harmonize Luke 21 and Matthew 24. And what I did was I said, okay, let me look at them both, again, with Luke dictating the order, and as I identified, let's say, unique, like distinctive events, I labeled them, calling it, let's say, sign one, sign two, sign three, etc. It was a tedious exercise. I didn't know how many I was going to come up with. I came up with 12 distinct and unique signs and events. So to keep tabs on them, I labeled them, signs one through 12. So here is the summary, and you remember this part. Sign number one, many will come in my name saying, I am he, I am the Christ, and the time is near. Sign number two, you, speaking of Israel, will hear of wars and rumors of wars or disturbances. Sign number three, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Sign number four, there will be great earthquakes in various places. Sign number five, there will be plagues and famines in various places. Sign number six, there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. And our Lord said that these first six signs are the beginning of birth pangs like contractions in labor. Sign number seven, you, Israel, will be delivered to tribulation, betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name or my authority. Sign number eight, many false prophets will arise and mislead many. Sign number nine, Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies. So the abomination of desolation will follow. Sign number 10, many beginning in Judea will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the fullness of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Then... The abomination of desolation is erected in the temple of God. Sign number 11. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars, and on on the earth dismay among the nations, in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and of the waves, uh, fainting from the fear and expectation of the things which are about to come upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then last but not least, the final sign. I call this sign number 12. Every eye will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And after identifying these 12 distinct signs, I said, well, coincidentally, there's 12 hours in a clock. So why don't I, to help us organize this, why don't I put each sign next to its corresponding number of a clock? And here's what I came up with originally. And you're familiar with this, right? It's like, okay, 12 signs, 12 hours in a clock, 
let me at least put it in this way so at least we can have it on one page. And I tried my best to color code it. One through six is birth pangs. Seven through ten, Jerusalem's tribulation. And then we get to the great global tribulation in sign number 11. And then when we get to the top of the hour or the fulfillment of the hour, every eye will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So for our second question, we learned that the sign He gave His disciples concerning when the temple buildings will be fully destroyed, His return and the end of the age are about to take place. It wasn't a single sign. I wish it was that easy. But it was a sign consisting of at least 12 distinctive signs and events. So the truth we learned was the sign are the 12 signs. Collectively, they all come together. Meaning, before everyone sees him coming in the, power, coming in the clouds with power and great glory, everything that he talked about must take place first. This is what it was in context. The disciples asked them, what sign signals that the destruction of the temple, his return, and the end of the age is about to occur? And he gave them not a single sign, but a sign comprised of at least 12 major events. And that takes us to the very end. And I made this case in point. When sign number one starts, the clock starts ticking. I called it God's prophetic clock. Then after sign one takes place, then the following signs will follow. So here's a newer and improved clock showing this. Try to put a little more visual here. See, see her? Our Lord said signs one through six are like birth pangs. So not only did I color code them, birth pangs, that's what our Lord used in this imagery. But you see, when sign number one starts, God's prophetic clock is ticking. And what I did was also, in this new and improved chart, is I used blue as the color coding for Jerusalem, because if you look at their flag, it's white and blue. So I was like, hey, you know what, let's keep it consistent. So I used blue to color code. These in blue implicates Jerusalem, Israel. But signs 7 through 10, after the birth pangs, then it's Jerusalem's tribulation or the final period of the indignation. Then once they've been ravaged, after they've been surrounded by armies, overtaken, the Gentiles take them and many of them will be taken into captivity and many will be slain. Just like you know when we looked at Josephus' work, what the Romans did, it's going to be like that. That's why he says, woe to those who are pregnant and nursing babies and pray your flight won't be on the Sabbath. It's going to be devastating. But in this case, not only is there going to be a slaughter, but many will be taken into captivity into other nations. Once all that is done, our Lord says, then there are going to be signs in the sun, moon, and stars, and on the earth dismay among the nations, and in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. We're starting to get into great global tribulation. And then, after all that, then every eye will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. This is the sign, this whole thing. It's God's prophetic clock. But when it strikes 12 in this imagery, that's when our Lord is coming back in a cloud with power and great glory. As far as 
sign number one and the first seal. Okay, where does the first sign fall with respect to the breaking of the first seal and the rider on the white horse? And initially, I was inclined to place them together. And you remember this, I used this in our last study. When I looked at the description of the rider on the white horse and the breaking of the first seal, that this rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer, that I attributed, you know, perhaps someone who's claiming to be Christ or in the place of Christ is here. And then followed by that, the conquering and to conquer some sort of holy war. Initially, this is where I was at. Upon further review, as much as I would like to help make the scripture fit, I too need to be on guard against doing that. Remember, I'm following the principles that I believe will get us to the truth. You must take Scripture with Scripture. You must not add or take away. Don't take it out of context. And of course, don't impose your personal bias. So I need to be on constant guard against my tendencies in straying away from, and God forbid, spreading alternative theories. The last thing I want to do before you and before our God is to give you another theory. So I need to be flexible wherever the Scripture takes us. And of course, I need to continually cross-check my work. So what I'd like to do from here is I want to examine when the prophetic clock began. When did sign one begin? When it says, many will come in my name saying, I am he, I am the Christ, and the time is near. Let's look to Scripture. I didn't need to look too far. We're familiar with this verse. John wrote in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 18. John wrote, children, it is the last hour. And just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. So Jesus gave the Olivet Discourse in the month of Nisan, AD 30. And a little side note here, probably about a year, a year ago or so, I tried to organize the last week of our Lord using the Gospels and seeing what events happen on what day leading up to his crucifixion. And the great Olivet Discourse was either a day or maybe a couple of days before his arrest and crucifixion. So it was very close to each other. When he gave this Olivet Discourse, not very long from there, he had his last supper with his disciples and he was arrested and crucified. But it was in the month of Nisan, AD 30. First John is believed to be written before Revelation around 85 to 95 AD. So from the time our Lord gave this Olivet Discourse, that Nisan AD 30, about 50 years or so later, John said, even now many antichrists have appeared. So here's the truth. Sign one began before the end of the first century, around 85 to 95 AD. Meaning, sign one already started before Revelation was written. So here's the implication. The rider on the white horse is after the first sign. And allow me, oh, meaning this is wrong. So I stand corrected by Scripture. That's why I try to put an X there. The rider on the white horse is not tied to sign one. Where does the first seal fall? I don't know. Right now, I don't have a high level of confidence 
of telling you, okay, when John sees in this vision our Lord take the book from the Father's hand, and when our Lord breaks the first seal, I don't know where that falls right now in prophecy. I don't know. I will make some deductions that we can build upon. Sign number one started 85 to 95 A.D., Revelation was written about 95 and 96 A.D., so the first seal must come after sign one and after 95 or 96 A.D. Here's a, here's a deduction. We, we have at least this much. Any conquering and conquering from this writer, it implicates kingdoms and nations in power after 95 or 96 A.D. So if I can show that in this really simple timeline, all we know is that the first seal is after sign one. So if the Olivet Discourse was given in 30 AD, and let's just say, and I, I did this because I, I didn't want to put them too close together just so that you can see the sequence of things. So let's say Olivet Discourse, 30 AD. First John was believed to written around 85 to 95 AD. I just put 85 there. Sign one, the clock started when First John was written, because he said, even now many Christ, antichrists have appeared. And the, first, the breaking of the first seal must happen after 96 AD because it was given when Revelation was written. So the breaking of the first seal, all we know right now is it's after sign number one in that clock. Sign one? I, I don't know right now. But... I think I want, to, I want us to build on our learning and get there in discovery together. But here, I want to make this side note before we continue on. In that same verse where we were able to determine that God's prophetic clock already started, sign one is in motion, in that same verse, John warned us that Antichrist is coming. Let me read it again. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming. In our last hour study, we covered this very verse. And what we learned, that this too was prophecy concerning the arrival of Antichrist, capital A. So although many Antichrists arrive on the scene late first century, this is also prophetic warning that the one and only Antichrist, let's call him Satan incarnate, if he could become one, is coming. And he will appear and arrive on the scene. Does anyone want to guess where he's going to appear? North Pole? South Pole? South America? Australia? Hawaii? Uh, United States? D.C.? See, we giggle, right? Of course it's neither of those places. Where will he arrive? Jerusalem. Middle East. He will arrive on the scene there. And our Lord warned us of this very thing in the same Olivet Discourse. And for this one, I want to cross-reference Matthew's account. You're familiar with this. Beginning in verse 23, Then if anyone says to you, says to you Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, because do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, 
Do not go. Out. Behold, he is in the inner rooms. Don't believe them. For just as lightning comes from the east and even flashes to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Our Lord and John warned us that Antichrist is coming. And leading up to his arrival, false Christ and false prophets, both plural, they're going to arise and will show great signs and wonders. It kind of reminds me of the Acts of the Apostles. There's going to be a commotion. If you go back to the first century, the Acts of the Apostles, and this is before technology, their legend grew that they're performing signs and wonders as apostles of Christ. I kind of get this same sense here of this warning. But leading up to Antichrist's return, there's going to be an announcement. Behold, here is the Christ. Kind of like John, isn't it? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in this announcement, they're going to be like, there he is. He's in the wilderness or he's in the inner rooms. And when we consider Luke's account, you know what he's going to say? I am he. And the time is near. There's going to be a commotion. There's going to be this announcement and proclamation he's here. And he's going to utter the words, I am he. And the time is near. This is end times prophecy. And Jesus is telling us, he's not coming in that way. Don't listen. Don't go out. Don't believe him. Because He's going to come. He goes, even as lightning flashes from the east and even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. He's not coming in that way. Antichrist is going to come in that way. Behold, I have told you in advance. Case in point, using Scripture, sign one already started way back in 85 or even to 95 AD, somewhere around there. And although the prophetic clock began in late first century, Antichrist himself will arrive on the scene towards the end of the age. It's when Antichrist arrives. That's when the destruction of the third temple, Jesus' return, and the end of the age the Lord's spoken of is at hand. When there is the temple reconstructed and rebuilt, when the sacrifices are going on, and when Antichrist himself appears we're getting really close to the destruction of that temple his return and the end of the age we're at the tail end of history as we know it so that's what scripture tells us in light of sign one many will come in my name saying i am he i am the christ and the time is near so next i want to look at signs one through six in light of history because Signs 1 through 6 is post-revelation. Again, here are those six signs. The birth pangs, many will come in my name saying, I am he, I am the Christ, and the time is near. Sign number 2, Israel will hear of wars and rumors of wars or disturbances. Sign number 3, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Sign number 4, there will be great earthquakes in various places. Sign number 5, there will be plagues and famines in various places. Sign number 6, there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. And what I want to do is I want us to have some fun and check these signs against tools and resources available today to see which, if any, have been fulfilled in recorded history. And for that, I'd like to ask for you 
to please come back. So, in closing, I want to look at this in... I want, first, I want to start with the first six signs. But I want to look at all of this in light of history. Here's what I'm going to endeavor to do. I want to look at these signs. I want to look to history to see which, if any, have been fully fulfilled, partially fulfilled, and not fulfilled at all. And then what I want to do is I want to take this clock, and then I want to add a little marker. Okay, this partially fulfilled or fully fulfilled, or did not start yet. Then we'll see where the chips fall, and I think that's going to help us understand where that fits within Revelation and Daniel's vision. So we're going to look at these signs in light of history, see what's in motion and what is still to come, and then we will know precisely what is left that needs to be fulfilled so that his words that not one stone will be left upon another is fulfilled. And that is return. Remember, he is coming in the, cu- in the cloud. The Son of Man is coming in the clouds and every eye will see him. And then the end of the age are about to occur. We'll look at history, see what's, what's in motion and what isn't. And then I think we can focus on, okay, well, the ones that aren't in motion, okay, that one. We are truly in the last and last of hour because then the rest is going to follow and he will fulfill all that is written. Amen. Thank you for following along with us today at Truth Matters Church as we continue to uncover the rich truths and the mysteries of the Bible in our expository study of Revelation. As Pastor Alex mentioned, there is so much more to learn from this study, so we do hope that you'll join us next time. You can follow us on Sermon Audio and Facebook or bookmark us at truthmatterschurch.org. Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church.